0: Military career really works, and I was like, you know, I'd love to be an operations officer or squadron commander of a, of a fighter squadron and make it to 20 years, and that was, I had real no, really no massive ambition to be a general officer or anything, and so I made it to squadron commander, and I made it to uh, lieutenant colonel at about the 18. 18th 17-year points, something like that. Somebody asked me, and I was like, well,
1: welcome to the Jess Larson Show, where I interview innovators and leaders. Today, I'm excited to have
0: retired Brigadier General David Hicks on the show. David, thanks for doing this. Thanks. Uh, It's great to be here. It's it's an honor uh, to be part of a long and distinguished list of folks that you have uh, interviewed on the podcast. No, I'm excited to have you. Well, I want to talk about a number of the
1: nonprofit things you've done. And will you start with Op Sacred Promise and tell us what that
0: does? Sure. So Op Sacred Promise Foundation was, I I founded it, the foundation in September of last year. And it was as a result of the evacuations done out of Afghanistan and really the airborne evacuation that was done early on for the two weeks and two weeks in August, last two weeks in August. And to give you a little background, 2016 to 2017, uh, I was in command of all of the NATO and U.S. forces that were building the Afghan Air Force. So was living uh, with them and living on base with them, flying with them, you know, building relationships with them in the course of my year that I was there. When uh, Kabul fell, uh, there were a number of, of veterans that were both still in the military and out of the military that were former advisors that that stepped up and started trying to figure out how to get their Afghan counterparts and their families out of Afghanistan, because there was no, there was no plan to do that, and they were uh, target number one for the Taliban. And so over the course of the the couple of weeks of the air evac, we had a number of other things happen with the evacuation of aircraft also to other countries, we kind of called ourselves or started uh, calling ourselves Operation Sacred Promise uh, as other veterans organizations were standing up to, to try to get folks out doing this also. So I stood up the foundation knowing that the resettlement piece here in the U.S. was probably going to be difficult at best for them, and that was to help them get resources they needed to resettle, help them possibly get job training, language training, education opportunities. So, So that's what we've been doing. And it's still an all-volunteer organization with what we're doing right now, uh, which obviously we'll talk a little bit more about that later on.
1: Yeah. Now, I know you're affiliated with a number of different NGOs. And my friend, Steve Tree, retired 06 out of Air Force Intelligence, is the one who got me connected to your folks. Now, tell me
0: how you got connected to the organization he's working with. So the the Moral Compass Federation is a federation of 18 uh, NGOs right now are organizations that all of them are focused on getting Afghan, primarily focused on Afghan Special Forces, Afghan Air Force, Afghan Special Mission Wing, which is their special operations uh, arm of their air of the Air Force, and then a certain other groups, you know, family members, women, children, anything that anything that's high risk, I guess you would say, and it's mainly. These 18 organizations are mainly veterans, either active duty or retired, but we actually have a a fairly large contingent of civilians that weren't associated with the military that have come on board in the last eight months with all of these groups and we kind of are under the umbrella of the Special Operations Association of America, which is where the Moral Compass website resides underneath and it has all of our, uh, all of our NGOs with that. We all have the same general goal, you know, as far as what we're trying to do. So we try to pool our resources and pool our knowledge and our intelligence to make sure that everybody's got the maximum, really the maximum up-to-date information possible and in trying to get folks out. And then once they get here to the U.S., resettlement opportunities for them also.
1: Yeah. You know, our listeners will be familiar with my interview with Asma Pygir and how she escaped from the Taliban back in September. I'm wondering if you could start off with with a success story out of Afghanistan.
0: Yeah, so, you know, when we first started, it was, I'll never forget getting a phone call in the afternoon of August 14th. I was driving to the airport with my parents, uh, getting ready to fly back to Vegas. And uh, it was one of my former commanders. And he said a number of the A-29 pilots had reached out, you know, more or less in desperation, wondering what the plan is, or if there was a plan to get them out. And uh, we rapidly realized there wasn't, there was no plan in place. So we started trying to get other former advisors to, to go to work so we could have a group of folks that could work this 24 seven. And literally everybody set up, set up camp and set up little operation centers with their laptop and their phones in their living room or their kitchen or wherever all around the United States. And, uh, we went to work, we tried to reach out to congressmen, to senators, to the media, to the folks on the ground in Afghanistan at HKI as far as the military leadership there. And, you know, we worked, went to work using our phones primarily as our primary means of communication with our Afghan counterparts, moving them around the city, trying to get them in different gates. And uh, it was the first few days were insanely frustrating. As you could see all the chaos on TV. So they kind of locked down the entire base and uh, we knew our families were going to be, like I said, target number one for the Taliban. So we were literally sending pictures on our phone of screenshots of maps on, and we had open source information and intelligence. We knew where the Taliban checkpoints were. We had websites that we could do, we could use to, to tell that. And we would move them around, move them around the Taliban checkpoints. We would put them into culverts to sleep at night, uh, in some instances. So they didn't go back home. And, uh, ultimately it took us about a week to start getting some success stories. But ultimately, we got all of the A twenty nine pilots and most all of the families, with a couple of small exceptions, into H Kaya Airport and, and out uh, of Afghanistan. So, you know, how many we, pilots is that? We the ones we managed to get out of Kabul, I believe, we wound up getting twenty it was twenty five pilots and about I think it was a little over a hundred family members, if I remember correct, as well wow. in that neighborhood. So I was, I was getting, getting my numbers confused occasionally, but ultimate op sacred promise and the Afghan air force and special mission wing personnel, we've ultimately gotten just under a thousand out total of air force members and and special mission wing members and their families. Most of which are here in the United States now.
1: That's incredible. I mean, when I was interviewing Asma about her time, I mean, it sounded so much like World War II and those stories of the Nazis going door to door and just shooting people. And like, I've been able to talk to some folks from Afghanistan who unfortunately have lost family members. Like, I think at home, sometimes it just feels like the movies or that's just the stuff on the news. It doesn't feel that personal. And then like, when I've actually got to talk to people and some family members made it, some family members didn't like, it just really hit home for me for people. Not maybe take a little bit of a return for people, not familiar with the a 29 platform. Can you explain that plane
0: and and why it's so important? Yeah, so the A-29, its nickname is the Super Tacano. It was built in Brazil by Embraer and then modified here in the United States. It, it kind of reminded me of flying a World War II airplane because it's a propeller-driven airplane. It has 50-caliber machine guns in each wing. You know, you could carry a few bombs, but you couldn't carry a lot. But it was very rugged and very, I'll say, Mostly user-friendly, so you didn't have a whole lot of insanely high-tech instrumentation and weapons on board. And so it was easier for us to teach the Afghans how to employ it, how to use it. And as we were getting them on board or as we were training them, they were doing extremely well with the aircraft and the aircraft was having great success in Afghanistan for all the failures over there. That'll be analyzed over time. The Afghan Air Force and the Afghan Special Mission Wing, and the special forces, the ground special forces of the Af- uh, Afghan army were three good news stories that we really had trending in a good direction. Unfortunately, when everything fell apart. Yeah. And did you also fly A 10 Warthogs? I did. That was my primary aircraft while I was in the Air Force, flown a, a number of different things, but that's the one I got the vast majority of my time in. I got about just under 4,000 hours uh, in the A 10 and was commander at Kandahar Airways for 2010 to 2011. So, uh, yeah, the Warthog is very near and dear to my heart. Love flying it, love flying it in combat. Wish I could go crawl back into one tomorrow. <laughs> I would do. Do you have an estimate on how many combat missions you flew? It's just with, because not all of them were in the A, the vast majority, probably 140 of them were at least, just under, probably just under 200 combat missions in around 600 hours, I would say it's right in that neighborhood. Yeah. same thing. Can you talk about
1: that platform? And like, I especially know my, my friends coming out of the special operations forces
0: community really appreciate the kind of support that you guys perform in that platform. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's not the sexy, fast, sleek, Air Force fighters that, you know, the Air Force is kind of known for and the Air Force loves. This is one that's kind of get down, dirty, get muddy, get nasty. And, and mix it up with the forces on the ground. And I think that's why the Marines and the army and the special forces love us so much, cause we kind of, most of the pilots kind of adopted the same mentality. We had no problem. We didn't necessarily want to look nice and shiny and, you know, sleek. We're, we're ready. We're ready to mix it up anytime, anywhere. Yeah.
1: fly, fly in low and slow and actually supporting those guys who are currently being shot at. Right. Um, exactly. Exactly. F- correct me here, but. Is that the plane that has all that extra, all that extra bulletproof material on the bottom because you plan on being shot at a lot?
0: Yes, yeah, so it was designed with uh, what's essentially a titanium bathtub. And that's that encloses most of the cockpit. Or, you know, the, that's not glass. That encloses uh, most of the cockpit. Then the front windscreen actually was designed to be uh, resistant, uh, resistant to heavier caliber AAA. So yeah, it's it's actually got a, titanium bathtub that was specifically put in there to protect the pilot and everything that you know the way they built designed the hydraulics all the systems on the airplane were to be redundant in case it got hit you could keep flying you know takes a licking yeah. keep on you know, ticking do you remember the
1: first time being a pilot and taking fire or like your first time in an, first time in an airplane that's taking fire
0: yeah you know it was it was in it was in afghanistan and saw some saw some tracer fire and and the uh, muzzle flashes and whatnot and it was kind of interesting because i looked at it i was in i noticed it and i saw the tracer fire kind of coming up in our direction so i i kind of looked and looked again and it it was kind of a weird feeling i didn't i didn't feel fear or anything like that i was i think i was more ticked off than, than anything else i'm like how dare them shoot at me and so that just kind of i guess helped keep keep me focused that much more for the mission or the task at hand.
1: Yeah. Maybe just before we switch back to the nonprofit side of things, can you talk about, you know, I think about my years consulting and and going to all sorts of different bases and stuff, and there's not a lot of folks that make it to being a flag officer. When you think about maybe what you did different in your career, I mean, I think probably most officers, when they start out, they think, oh, I'd really like to become a general or flag officer. And and yet, as a percentage, so few of them ever get there. Can you talk about anything that you think you did different that helped you achieve that, that much higher level of achievement? Yeah, sure.
0: I guess, you know, for me, it's ironic you, you say that because when I, I vividly remember as a lieutenant in Louisiana, in the A-10 squadron, we were standing around one day and we'd ha- we were having a big drawdown of forces right after the... The first Gulf war desert storm and uh, everybody's kind of, Hey, what, what do you think would be a successful career for you? And this is a bunch of young lieutenants that don't know crap about, you know, how the military career really works. And uh, I was like, you know, I'd love to be an operations officer or squadron commander of a, of a fighter squadron and make it to 20 years. And that was, I had real no, really no massive ambition to be a general officer or anything. And so I made it to squadron commander and I made it to uh, Lieutenant Colonel at about the 18, 17 year point, something like that. And somebody asked me and I was like, well, as long as I'm having fun and I'm making a difference, I'm going to keep going and, uh, and try to be really at the end of the day, just try to be the best and do the best job I could at whatever I was tasked with, you know, try to be the best pilot I could be when I was in command, try to be the you know, the best leader, try to be keen to understanding and helping those both above me and below me, hopefully grow and get what they need in life. And, and as a, and, and then really just try to stay grounded. And I think that was the biggest thing for me. I didn't try to, I never really tried to be anything bigger than who I was. And I never tried to portray myself as someone who was bigger than what I was. And why do you think that worked for you? I I think. And in the course of doing that, and as I got to mid and senior ranks or, you know, the higher ranks, I was honest with my superiors. If stuff was not good, if we were taking too much risk or if the, if the news was stinky, I was still going to provide it. And I was still going to provide my best recommendations. And and so I think I, I think that helped probably, you know, in the, in the big scheme of things, you see it a lot. You see it in the military and you also see it in the, in the public sector where people are afraid to push up or pass up bad news and, and really try to solve or take care of the problem early on. And then a lot of times by the time the bad news is passed up, there is no easy or good solution. I was always one that I would tell everybody that worked for me. I'm like, I don't care if the news stinks. I don't care if it's the best news in the world. I just need to know it. I can't help you if I don't know. I don't know the good, the bad, and the ugly. And, you know, I tried to do that both up the chain and down the chain and you know, it seemed to work pretty well.
1: That's great. How do you feel like that has helped you as you've transitioned, transitioned to the civilian world? And, you know, as you've been doing this nonprofit work and it's, <laughs> it's not a jailable offense to disobey your order anymore. How, how yeah. do you feel like that's helped
0: you? It, is, it has been different. It's been eye-opening, but it's been eye-opening in a, I'll say a positive way. I, you know, I got out, served 30 years. It was an honor to do it. I, I came to Las Vegas doing a job uh, that I really love doing because I'm still flying in the corporate world. And, and then, you know, I had a couple opportunities for consulting and then, a, you know, friend I met out here wanted me to be on his board uh, at Team 5. So Really, the biggest thing I think I've learned is when you're out of the military and, you know, you don't have a direct superior that you're answering to or, you know, direct, uh, a direct set of folks that you're responsible for, kind of the sky's the limit. You know, it's, it's funny because I got to thinking like late August, about a week or 10 days into the, into the chaos, we're trying to get these folks out. I was trying to think and look. You know, my last job in the air force was the chief of strategy and Wargaming for the air force. So my job was to always look further out, you know, 10, 15, 20 years out to see what we think the adversaries were going to be doing. And so I was trying to do the same thing with the Afghans. I'm like, I don't think anybody's thought about what's going to happen when they get here to the States. And so then I just started getting, looking around the computer. I'm like, well, I guess I can set up a foundation. And so, you know, called a CPA and lawyer and we sat down, did the paperwork, next thing you know, we, we've got the foundation up and running and got all the IRS paperwork and everything going with it. And I'm still learning, you know, we're still learning as we go, but it's, I think, uh, learning, getting out of the military and learning that really the sky's the limit for what you can do on a personal, uh, from a personal standpoint, be it with a job, be it with career, personal life. It's been, it's been fun, uh, quite honestly. There's been many nights where I have not said it's exactly fun, but overall, uh, I really enjoyed the opportunity to do them.
1: You know, it's great. Obviously super impressive to help over a hundred people escape from the Taliban who, you know, likely going to kill them. But can you tell us the success story of some of the folks you've been able to help now that, now that you're here?
0: Yeah. So, you know, we, we've gotten most of the folks that have made it to the States are now settled in different regions of the country. And really the goal with the resettlement effort is to kind of make sure the big organizations that are supposed to be taking care of this, the large resettlement organizations and the government are getting them all their benefits they're supposed to get them and and pushing them out, trying to help with housing, trying to help with basic needs. And then our big push that's going to take really probably the bulk of our financial resources is getting the pilots that are here in the U.S., their U.S. pilot training and they're equivalent for that so we can get them jobs. And so right now we've got three guys that are our test case going to a flight school in uh, New Mexico with some great folks down there that have developed the, the plan of what they need based off of their flight experience. And if we can get them their commercial ratings, which will hopefully happen here in the next, we think we have jobs with either folks like FedEx or some of the commercial aviation companies lined up and ready to go. So we're, we're at that very hopeful stage where things are going well. If we get these first three done, we've got two more groups of 10 lined up right behind them to be ready to go and shove into the training. So we're going to start expanding it once we get the proof of concept done with the first three. So that's one big one that, you know, I think we, I can't say we've touched home plate and it's a complete success story yet, but we're getting very close. We're rounded, we're rounded third base, at least uh, on our way.
1: Well, that's exciting. You know, obviously getting out and getting away from the people who want to kill you and your family is a pretty big priority, but I mean, I just think as a father, like If you if you can't provide for your family, like that is such a that is such a tough situation to be in, right? And so helping them get a job, helping them figure out what they're going to do about this now is awesome.
0: It it is, and it's it's very very big in their society and their culture. If they don't if if the if the if the father is unable to provide for the family, it becomes a very big loss of face in their culture, and they kind of sometimes will think of themselves as a as a little bit of a failure. So. We want to, we want to give them or, you know, hopefully enable them every opportunity uh, to succeed. And it's also difficult for us right now because we had a number of pilots that got aircraft and helicopters out of Afghanistan to Tajikistan and Uzbekistan. And we ultimately got those both of those groups of pilots, primarily pilots out of both of those countries in detention and eventually here to the U.S. Well, Those folks that got here don't have their families with them. Their families are still in Afghanistan. So now trying to get them a job so they can, you know, start living in a strange country first off, but then figure out how they can provide for their families back in Afghanistan and hopefully eventually get them reunified. You know, that's our, one of our next big challenges, if you will, is that, but that's a massive that's a massive challenge for each one of them individually because now they've also got the mental anguish of them being free, you know, here in the U.S., but their family still being in Afghanistan, still being hunted, you know, still being looked for. So it's, you know, every time we have a good news story, we seem to have one or two difficult ones that we're we're trying to navigate around and help them with.
1: Yeah, I'm kidding. Speaking of those good news stories, can you tell us what it's like to talk to somebody who was scared maybe this was like coming in on the end of their life and now they've got they've got a new life what what's that emotional state like when they finally when they finally made it and you got to talk
0: to them or anything yeah it's gosh i don't there's not many feelings emotions i've had that are that are better than that so me i'll just give one story he's an a29 pilot and we got him and his family out during the during the chaos, and there was one night at about four in the morning. We were unsuccessful on this night, getting them into the gates, but about four in the morning, I was on the phone talking to a U.S. Marine outside the gates in Kabul. And one of our other guys uh, on the team was talking to an Afghan colonel that was uh, guarding the gate and they were about 10 feet away. And I was on Samim's phone yelling above the gunfire to the Marine, uh, young Marine there trying to tell him who these people were while, uh, Splinter, the other guy who lived in Mississippi was on the phone talking to the, to the Colonel, the Afghan Colonel, trying to get him in. And Splinter could hear me cause they had my phone on speaker. He could hear me talking to the Marine cause they were only about five feet away. And he called me after we got off, after we both got off the phone, we we're trying to move him and, and, and get him in and whatnot. He's like, I could hear you talking to that Marine. I was like, what, what are you talking about? Because goes, yeah, you had your phone on speaker. He goes, I said, how crazy is this? It's four in the morning. We're talking to two people, 8,000 miles away in chaos, and you're hearing me talking while we're getting this done. So fast forward, uh, we had an event uh, a couple months ago and it was the first time I got to see Samim in person and uh Splinter was there also, and so you know, it, that was emotional getting to see it, getting to genuinely feel the gratitude. You know, none of us were doing this to get any type of gratitude or any type of recognition, but you know, you can't help but feel good when you see them for the first time. And you can't help but get a little bit of emotional when you see or when you see them and hug them for the first time too.
1: No kidding. Well, listen, if there's anybody listening today who wants to be a part of one of these success stories. Can you give us the website where they can donate or where they can reach out to you about h- finding out how they could be helpful?
0: Sure. So Hop Sacred Promise, so just hop, sacred promise all one word.org is our website. Talking bigger picture with what we're doing with the Moral Compass Federation. The uh, easiest thing to do is just Google Moral Compass Federation. And you'll see it'll come up under, under Special Ops Association of America website. And it has all 18 of our organizations. So you can, you can donate to the Federation and it'll trickle down to all of us, or you can go in and look at the other, because I would highly encourage looking at the other NGOs and what they're doing. Uh, they're doing stuff that's very similar to our, or what we're doing, just as important, uh, if not more important work. And I'll give it to you. It's a uh, SOA. Uh, Soaa.org dot org backslash Afghanistan. And that will give you the Moral Conflicts Federation face your page of, of all the groups that are doing this.
1: That's great. You
0: mentioned how you've had a lot of civilians get
1: involved and become volunteers and stuff. What are some of the things that they've been
0: able to do to help? They've, they've helped with legal assistance. You know, there's a lot of that. They've, they've come on board and helped with resettlement and different. Towns and areas around the country, uh, you know, they where they've had Afghans come in. I've had a number. We've had a number of folks that have reached out to us through the website that are civilians, and they've had Afghans transplanted to their cities, and then they reach out to us and go, "Hey, do you know you have a helicopter pilot here or a family here?" Like, no, and they're like, "Well, what can we do to, you know, what can I do, or is there anything we can do to help out?" And so it's uh, it's been pretty neat from that standpoint where the the number of, the number of non-military affiliated people that have reached out uh, to help any way they can. And, you know, sometimes they're in a position where they can help more than others. It just, it all depends on the situation and the, and the scenario as far as where they're at and, you know, what they know or what they can. So if somebody wants to do that, reaching out through the website is probably the best way it is, it absolutely is. The, the email, the email for that website actually comes to me. So, so I try to, I try to jump on those as soon as I can. Thanks. Great, busy calls.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, listen. I think this is a great place to end part one. Everybody, please tune into part two. I've got a whole bunch
0: more questions for Dave. Thanks for doing this. Absolutely. Absolutely. Really enjoy it. Great. Bye, guys.